0: Hello, and welcome to this Monday edition of Atlas Live. This is our week in review, as, as we have turned it into as of late, a recap of the topics that we discussed live Wednesday and Friday evening last week. And uh, we hope that everyone had a, a good weekend, restful and enjoyable. We, uh, today already have (laughs) spent much of the morning, uh, shoveling ourselves out of a, uh, a rather significant, uh, snowfall. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a snowstorm, but there was significant drifting snow and that made it much more dramatic than it otherwise would have been. And not only did we have to, uh, shovel the walk and the driveway and uh, all that stuff, but we also had to pull snow off the, the roof because it accumulates in snow drifts and it becomes uh, rather uh, dangerous with the weight. So we got to, we, we did quite a lot of work this morning already. But having said that, uh, it's time let's, we may as well um, <clears throat> start delving into the topics, although... Here is the, uh, the link. If you feel so inclined to jump on the stream, by all means, feel free to do so. Uh, if you have something you'd like to ask or contribute and you don't want to deal with the chat with typing, you're more than welcome to jump in on the lines, live stream. Uh, according to StreamYards, there are two of us on the stream right now uh perhaps some more will join us a little later perhaps not we'll have to see how that goes but in the meantime we may as well uh start getting into the um the first topic of uh this evening which as we try to uh Get our st- there it is. Alright. While <clears throat> well, we try to get ourselves organized with technology here, and we can hide this. Okay. On Wednesday, we decided to go a little bit deeper into our exploration of the film The Last Duel. That's Ridley Scott's latest film starring Ben Affleck and Adam Driver and Matt Damon and Jodie Cummer. Those are the four actors on the poster here. And we decided to do to do this in the context of Ridley Scott's other period films. Because while they are great adventure stories and Ridley Scott went to great lengths to do his research and to hire historians and professional uh, experts in order to achieve uh, a maximum level of realism in his mind. He wanted to deliver films which had a historical authenticity to them, and that he did. Although so-called serious historians, of course, came out and and attacked or attacked most of his attempts at period drama for this inaccuracy and that inaccuracy, and so... In other words, there's no pleasing them. You can't please all the people all the time, no matter what lengths you go to. There's no agreement among historians as to what exactly took place and exactly, you know, what things were exactly like. And of course, the reason why there's no agreement is that nobody was actually there. Not from among those historians here today, and none of them, you know, practice esotericism in a serious way. so none of, have, none of them have access to past lives or or anything of that nature or the akashic records or any super strong intuition for them to be able to say definitively no, this was like this and that was like that. If they and we can say that unequivocally unequivocally. we can say that with fact and the reason why we can say that is because to this day, canonical, history, the the official narrative of this humanity's history denies the existence of Atlantis and Lemuria and Hyperborea, etc. It denies the existence of giants. It It denies the history of this planet, the history of humanities upon this planet. So it's easy to make the assertion that historians are asleep. Egyptologists' a version of Egypt is incorrect. And so they're they grasping in the dark. And then there are other individuals, like Graham Hancock, who come along and they sort of shake the trusses a bit with their you know, fingerprints of the gods, etc. Uh, Graham Hancock is an interesting fellow, by the standpoint of he's on the he's on the fence between states of uh, being asleep and being awake, and the reason why he can't get all the way over to awake is because his his because of his reliance on psychedelics and his belief in psychedelics and his belief in the power of psychedelics to unveil the truth, and that's why Graham Hancock cannot produce the definitive human timeline. All he can do is grasp at the straws that he's grasping at the the interpretations that he possesses, that are in part spurned on not only by his investigative journalism and investigative historical approaches, but also fueled on by his psychedelic experiences if the historians were truly awake then our view of the history of humanity on this planet would be very different indeed so it's not surprising then that among his, uh, among a whole bunch of historians who are asleep there's very little agreement as to what exactly took place and how it took place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And historians love tearing down each other's accounts. Because, of course, they must do so in order to defend their own account. Their own account of history is only as solid as the opposing accounts. So it's, it's invariably a an activity of intellectualism to constantly be attacking others' opinions and others' versions of the truth. Because one must shore up and defend one's own beliefs. Sounds a lot like religion, does it not? And religious dogma. And, incidentally, it sounds a lot like political doctrine, political ideology. What it also represents in macrocosm on the stage of intellectualism and history in in particular is that the ego mind, the false self, wants to accumulate. It wants accolades. It wants power. It wants control. And it specifically wants power and control over all of our faculties, over our lands. If, if If we can process the hume in human being, means earth, then a human being in microcosm is the earth in microcosm. We have a physical body, that is our hume, that is our earth. But we also have a psyche, and we also possess energy, the sexual force, the vital body. And both our psyche and our sexual energy is predominantly feminine. That is what the adversary covets the most. It wants to dominate and control our psyche, and it wants to consume, it wants to have our sexual energy. It wants to feed off of it and indulge itself through it. Not unlike a nobleman Who is best friends with a knight in 14th century france and forgive you'll have to forgive me if i cannot remember the names i'm so terrible with names at the best of times i'm not going to remember the names of a squire and a knight from 14th century uh history in a film that i watched once so i'm not going to remember i'll i will use the actors names (laughs) Because at least I've seen them in multiple films, and I can I can place a name of the face. But their original uh, character names, uh, I'm I'm not going to use those because, in all fairness, if you haven't seen the film, you won't know, you know, what we're talking about. But at least, even if you've seen the trailer and you have a general idea of what the film is about, you'll be able to place the actors face to the name and get a a sense of of what's going on, even just based on the trailer. So let's see where uh, we're going with this uh, in terms of the... uh... Oh yes, this is just a slide that's uh, showing various uh, characters from various of uh, Ridley Scott's films. So the last duel. We have a knight who is married to the character of uh, Jody Cummer. And uh, she's here. And he has a very good friend in Adam Driver. Adam Driver is only a squire. He hasn't been knighted yet. But uh, they have had a uh, relationship, a friendship. Matt Damon and Adam Driver. But Adam Driver falls into under under the influence and into the employ of Ben Affleck's character. And Ben Affleck plays a lord, the lord of that particular part of France. Province, I guess. Might be a uh, one way to refer to but of course this is feudal Europe so each uh, nation was carved up into different territories and then different noble families or houses held control over those territories governance if you will and they were responsible for collecting the taxes etc etc So the influence, and, in, and in the under the influence and in the employ of Ben Affleck, Adam Driver, his demeanor and his character, um, let's say, is allowed to express some of its more insidious and darker aspects. And over the course of events, Matt Damon goes on a military campaign in the North, in Normandy, and Ben Affleck goes and pays a visit to his wife. And the result of this visit is that Jodie Cummer, Matt Damon's wife, accuses Adam Driver of having raped her. At this time in history, in Europe, women were not considered persons, strictly speaking. They were, in many ways, little more than chattel under the law. They were the property, first of their Fathers than of their husbands. So legally, this was a violation of Matt Damon's property. And therein lies the crux of the esoteric significance of the dynamic between Matt Damon the rightful, lawful owner of the lands and his psyche and his sexual force, the feminine aspects of his self. And Adam Driver, the false self, who arranges or awaits for Matt Damon to be absent, for the true self, for the consciousness to be absent and to leave unguarded his most precious possession, his sexual force and his psyche. And that is what happens when, we, when our mind wanders, when we fall asleep, when we, when we zone out. We become vulnerable. We become vulnerable to the false self to come and uh, take advantage And to indulge its self on our most precious faculties. Hello there, Jamie. Welcome. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Glad you could join us. Let's see if we can uh, reorient uh, everything here to make it. There we go. Uh, Well, yes. Okay. Uh, So... The last, there's two other characters that come into play here. One is Ben Affleck's character, who's the lord of the, the lord of the land, that both Matt Damon and Adam Driver are residents on and work on. So, but he's a very, I mean, he's a very, um, douchey kind of character he's a he's just not a he's a he's a real uh, typical medieval spoiled uh lustful drunkard on top of everything else and uh rest assured that ben affleck plays a damn good drunk on screen considering that he's unfortunately lived probably most of his adult life uh, suffering from alcohol uh, addiction, <clears throat> that character represents the ego, the adversary that has this influence over Adam Driver, and convinces Adam Driver that uh, that he is his that he is his friend. And he needs Adam Driver. Hello, Azazel. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Good, good, good. Glad you could join us. So this is an interesting dynamic here because uh, you can see because Adam Driver's faculties and abilities. For example, he's good with numbers. Another thing he's good at is intimidating the lords and landowners, the the lower. The nobility, but the lower nobility—the ones who, who have to answer to Ben Affleck. Adam Driver serves Ben Affleck as a tax collector and as an accountant, and financier. So not only yeah. does he does he help Ben Affleck. In other words, in other words, uh, Adam Driver is the muscle and the intellect. And if you just th- Contemplate your own self and contemplate how your egos, for example, well, any ego, envy, greed, how greed, for example, and envy or anger, as another example, contemplate how they are nothing. They're useless. They cannot accomplish anything without the faculties of your intellect and the faculties of your of your of your strength your physical strength yeah if your anger wants to punch somebody in the face he can't do that without your muscle right no and and if your and if your greed wants to accumulate he can't do that without your intellect so this is the the inter- relationships, the dynamics between these different characters so vividly capture the power struggle that is taking place within a single being. There is a fifth character. Now, unfor- now this is a, uh, a double-edged sword, because how do you, how do you depict... A childlike king in a serious way it's very difficult to do so so the first thing you do is you kind of minimize minimize his screen time you don't want to turn him into a buffoon but at the same time this is not richard the lionheart who's sitting on the throne right now Right now, this is France anyway, so it wouldn't be Richard the Lionheart anyway, but you get, you get, Armin. yeah, it's not, he's not some magnificent, powerful, you know, m- majesty monarch. This is a young, sniveling child, prepubescent, post pubescent. It's, it's vague, he's not a real, he's not a man, he's a boy. But Matt Damon answers to him, Matt Damon serves him his king, which is the Lord of Lords. In other words, Matt Damon serves the Logos. Matt Damon, being the true self, serves the Logos. And Ben Affleck, who presumes to lord over the land and presumes to take uh, Adam Driver as as his best friend, and steals him away from Matt Damon and and drives a wedge between the two of them, so as to keep Adam Driver all to himself, and and isolate Matt Damon from court, for example. Matt, Matt Damon falls out of favor. Matt Damon is not friendly with Ben Affleck. Matt Damon despises him. in in a way. He thinks he's disgusting and lewd. So, it's a very, very, very interesting dynamic. And then, there's another interesting thing that takes place in The Last Duel, which is the narrative structure. The film is told in three equal parts. It's a three-act structure, as most films are, as most drama is, three-act structure, beginning, middle, end. But like the like the Akira Kurosawa film Rashomon, the film depicts the same story told by three different perspectives from three different points of view. In each of those three acts. So you have Matt Damon's perspective in Act 1, you have Adam Driver's perspective in Act 2, and then you have Jodie Cummer's perspective in Act 3. The alleged rape victim. You get to see her side of the story last. And uh, each one is, what, about 45 minutes uh, long, maybe 50 minutes long. Many of, the, uh, many of the parts of the story we get to see repeated, only this time we're seeing it from a slightly different point of view. And uh, apparently, according to what we have researched into the film and to, that the book that the film is based on actually researched the original, uh, the original accounts by each of these characters, by each of these individuals. These historic individuals, so it's such that yes, it's a it's dramatized, of course. So there are aspects that are not you know completely known to have taken place. However, based on first uh, hand testimony and things like um, journals and memoirs and such, and court documents themselves, because at the end of the day, in Act Three. The film culminates in a court case, in a trial. And in that trial, Jodie Cummer, even though she is the one accusing uh, the nobleman, Adam Driver, of rape, she is every bit on the on the defense. She is the defendant, in fact. Because if she is found to be guilty, she will be put to death by being burned at the stake that's the that's the punishment for falsely accusing a nobleman so the stakes are very 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 high and the the so high that uh, someone there is, uh, is is voicing his uh, disdain at the <laughs> at the high stake <laughs> Sorry no, about that. No, no, that's quite all right. That's quite all right. Um, all right. So, okay. So that that's Jodie Kummer and that's uh, her with uh, Matt Damon. This is a, just a, a behind the scenes sh- sh- uh, photo. Of course, there's Ridley Scott. You know, Ridley Scott is 83 years old now. 83 years old. So, He's uh, as old as my father. And I can tell you, I there's no way my father could survive a movie set. <laughs> so there is a very, very good chance that The Last Duel is Ridley Scott's last film. It's a very, yeah. very, very good chance that that's the case. And it's a pity that the film... Did not do as well in the uh, in the movie theaters as it could have and should have because in for us anyway it is every bit as uh, significant a work as Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven. Every bit is esoteric and every bit as divinely inspired as those two films were. Um, apparently, you can watch it now on HBO Max, but I don't know what that means for, for you folk in uh, Europe. But uh, certainly, you must be able to see it on some form of streaming or whatever. So you have, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, I I do recommend you to watch it. Last um, night,
1: last night I tried to um, watch it on online on a website, but I had issues trying to stream it.
0: Oh yes, um, well, but I keep trying. It it, it can be it certainly, it, it's certainly certainly a challenge, uh, especially if you use um, you know like these IDTV services because we have such a service as well. And uh, it's very, it, you know, these services, it depends on how many people are, are using them. It's, uh, mm-hmm. There's all sorts of factors that come into play. Uh, HBO Max is the only legitimate streaming service where you can, where you can watch it right now. Uh, and, and there you probably wouldn't have any difficulty because it's a, a, a commercial or legitimate commercial streaming service. But perhaps in the near future, you'd be able to watch it on Google uh, or or Amazon Prime or who knows, uh, but whenever you get a chance, uh, we won't spoil the film necessarily. Not least because we have more content. We have a lot more to get through today, but it's but at least we set it up for you that as you as you watch the film, you can enjoy it on the his, on the level of history. You can enjoy it on the level of seeing these events through, through the lens of the 21st century, and that, that we recognize today that women are, are, are not chattel, they're not property. And so a lot of the absurdism, which was uh, so prevalent <clears throat> in the propaganda film, Right, um, uh, don't look up. That propaganda film used satire to create absurdism to highlight what it was trying to say. But Ridley Scott doesn't have to use any satire or propaganda, and indeed, he doesn't browbeat us with anything in this film. He he gives he he gives us the space to arrive at our own conclusions. So much so that he gives us each three different perspectives and he puts them more or less almost on equal footing. And, <clears throat> and it's the hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's from that lens that we look back on history and we see the absurdity. And some of the absurdity, for example, when the bishops in the, uh, in, the, in the church who are conducting the trial start talking about known scientific facts and when they start talking about what some of these scientific facts are, you can't help but start laughing because of the absurdity of what they believed to be scientific fact back in the middle ages, in the 14th century yeah But these scientific facts were being brought to bear on on the trial and on the fate of this young woman, as though it was forensic evidence (laughs) (laughs) and it's absurd. It really is absurd, but it's also unnerving and, 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 you know, it's, it's cause enough to make someone step back and take pause and say, well, I wonder what kind of scientific errors are being made today in courtrooms. I wonder, I wonder who is being uh, uh, fa- prosecuted and found guilty on erroneous forensic evidence. And interestingly enough, if you if you were to uh, look into uh, forensic scientists and forensic experts behind closed doors and off the record they will tell you that forensic evidence is, 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 is not an exact science that <laughs> what no, they do not. that they do has so much supposition and so much guesswork and so much um, they make so many assumptions and educated guesses and, and um, now we can, we imagine that if someone was called to do this work and they feel deep down in their heart that they were born to be an a forensic examiner then surely intuition must also play a role but if they are asleep if they're not on the path and they don't they certainly don't talk openly about intuition and gut feeling instead they will, they will, their intellect will, will, will morph that into comments about educated guesses or, well, you know, based on experience, based on, you know, they will, they will try to justify and rationalize because of course you can't get up in front of a judge and say, you know, when the judge asks you, well, how do you know? Or when the, when a, um, uh, a lawyer asks you, well, are you sure about this? And you say, Yes, because it's a very strong intuition. I mean, that, that's, not, that, that's not admissible in a court of law. It should be.
1: Yeah.
0: It should be. But it's not. Because everybody else in the courtroom is asleep. So, but in any case. Um, we have a couple articles on Gladiator that are on our blog. Gladiator Unmasked. Part one and part two, and um, what we see here here is the tree of life, and the various different characters mapped onto it from Gladiator. And when this came to us, it was such a profound um, insight. It was it was. Shakespearean, in in the 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 elevation, but we always knew Gladiator was certainly at that point Ridley Scott's masterpiece. We've been a, we have been a fan of Ridley Scott for a long long time, going all the way back to Alien and Blade Runner and Legend. And if uh, if you've never seen Legend, it's uh, it's a magical. It's a it's a fairy tale. Uh, Ridley Scott created a fairy tale. Original characters is sent, well it'd be based on based on uh, what European I guess um, uh, f- fairies and so on and so forth. But uh, he also created in Legend the in. In my opinion, and we don't watch horror movies, so let's be clear about that. We don't watch horror movies. But in the character of darkness that was portrayed by Tim Curry, Ridley Scott created the most compelling vision of a a demon or the devil that has ever been put on film. The the scenes with Tim Curry as Darkness, the and the the costuming, the makeup, the voice, the performance, but the the characteristics of Darkness as a, as a as a persona, as a character. Um, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a it's a magical movie, right? I mean, you you have to you you have to put some of your um, your internal movie critic on the back burner because the protagonist is played by a very young and inexperienced Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was a poor casting choice for this film. He plays Jack, and surely they could have found someone better, but. So for all his faults, he he does the best he can. And um, we can't remember the name of the actress who plays Lily, but she is innocent. And darkness desires innocence. He wants to corrupt her. He wants to make Lily, who's this innocent virgin young girl, darkness wants to make her his bride. And the other thing that Darkness desires for his master, because Darkness has a master lurking in the background the, that's, that we never really get any sort of real sense. It's very much a sort of Darth Vader emperor type type relationship where there's this greater evil force in the background and Darkness is sort of his, his front man. But Darkness has been charged by his master with the task of uh, killing the unicorn that runs free in the forest and, uh, and, and taking the power of the unicorn which is, which is in the unicorn's horn. And there's an absolutely brilliant scene when, so, so darkness is, is tasked with, with um, uh, winning over Lily, making Lily his bride. And he says, well, how am I supposed to do that, right? And he says, oh, well, woo her. Charm her. And then there's these, so there, there are these scenes... With darkness, who's eight feet tall, <laughs> Tim Curry made up as this hooved demon with these incredible horns, these just colossal horns. Just if you do like, I you know what, we have to uh, we have to show you if you've never seen this is it's an absolute remarkable achievement in in movie makeup. Um, See if we can get a good picture here. There we go. Can we make can we pull that up? Can you guys see that okay? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Um, I've seen that in the actual thing before through a mirror. (laughs) Through a mirror? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've seen it, you looked into the mirror and you've seen this. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um so but what uh, none of these do justice, and I can't play you a clip because I don't want the, uh, the stream to get um, uh, doxxed by uh, Google. But... Um, oh, oh, better not... Better uh, stop that. Okay, so his voice and his acting and everything else. So imagine, like, that character, this, uh, this character here, but being so charming and being so seductive, and uh, you get an idea of, of the uh, performance that was that was on screen, if you get a chance, you should be able to find legend. You might even be able to find most of it on, on YouTube, to be honest with you, because it certainly wasn't a uh... like many of Ridley Scott's moot films in the 80's, both Blade Runner and Legend, neither of them were box office, successes it's only it's only over time that blade runner became a cult classic and legend became another cult classic because those because uh it it whatever it lacked in attracting the masses it has for those who 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 can feel or see or sense what is special about his films and likewise Wrigley Scott said the same thing about The Last Duel. He said, you know, it didn't do well in the box office, uh, but he said um, he feels that history is going to be very kind to The Last Duel as well, that that time will, will, um, will be very kind to it. <clears throat> now, Gladiator was a different story. Gladiator did very well at the box office. And one of the reasons why it did so well was because it had these relationships between the characters, whereby each character represented something, um, but not just the characters, but also the settings. Every setting in the film can be mapped onto the tree of life. And if you want to spend more time with these, these are in our articles that are online on the blog, Gladiator 1 and Gladiator Unmasked 1 and 2. These are uh, in those articles. And we've talked about this in the past, that in many properties, in fact, all high art and all mythology, you can perform this exercise, is that the individual characters on, in the play, or sorry, on the stage, on the screen, in the novel, what have you, represent different aspects of a single psyche and that the connection with the piece with the story and with the characters comes from this fact is that high art performs this function because we are a tree of life and for something to speak to us it must do for us what Azazel just commented a moment ago. It must be a mirror for us.
1: It wasn't Jamie, actually.
0: It was a... It was me.
1: It, it, was, it, me. it was Jamie.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was Jamie. I'm sorry. It's hard for me to see. It's hard, it's hard, for, it's hard for me to tell who's speaking at any time. Okay, so it was yeah. Jamie said that uh, he saw it in a mirror. So, So every time we see a property or mythology or story... And because of the characters are mapped onto a tree of life this way, it speaks to our very soul. This is how it's speaking to our soul, our being, because the tree of life is inside of us. And so what makes something universal? So, for example, you know, the Lion King. Well, people have commented very often that the Lion King is simply an animated version of Hamlet. So is it surprising that the characters in The Lion King map onto the tree of life because the characters in Hamlet certainly do? So if you follow Euclid's equation, if one thing is equal, if two things are equal to one thing, then they are equal to each other. And the connection that people feel towards art is on this level. This is the level that people love something. They love Star Wars or they love Gladiator or whatever the case may be. It's on this level because that's, the le- that's, the, that's where love comes from. The problem is, of course, is that we have this ego mind and this intellect that loves to filter our love and twist it and corrupt it and modify it, subject it to its desires. And because we're asleep, and most people can't see this, what they feel inside, intuitively, they have to rationalize and justify somehow for themselves. So they start making up excuses for the film. People ask, you say, oh, I loved Gladiator. Oh, really? What did you love about it? And they're put on the spot and... Uh... Right? They can't say, well, I love the fact that all the characters map onto the Tree of Life. No, but I mean, they can't say that. They don't know that. They don't know that. They can't say to answer that. And the peer person who's asking, the person they're talking to, would probably have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Even if they, even if they did know that. So they got to come up with something. Oh, well, the acting was so good, and the action was so good and the writing was so good and the cinematography was so good and blah, 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 blah. And then boom, gladiator wins 10 Academy awards. But that's not what made gladiator gladiator. This is what made gladiator gladiator. All, all of things like this, for example, this is the tree of life and the caduceus of mercury emblazoned on Maximus's armor. The tree of life is right on his armor in the middle. But it's also, it's interesting because we also have Maximus's uh, wife and his son. His Divine Mother and his innermost intimate Christ Right, who is the product who is born of the inner of how we use our intimate connection with our own divine mother, our sexual force, from which rises the Christ, the divine masculine and divine feminine, uniting and giving rise to the divine androgen, the fire of the fire and the light of lights of the cosmic Christ. That's Maximus's son. Now we have a little bit of an inversion here because the horses are at the top, and we have these two griffins at the bottom. So the wings of the caduces of, of Mercury are at the bottom, not at the top. That's somebody's design issue. But the reason why the horses are on top is because the, that the reason why the horses are on top is because Maximus is a Spaniard. And the Andalusian horses of Spain, are world-famous and that's what you know he maximus this is part of his character so now there's another reason why they have to be up top and that is because uh, these are actually maximus's horses maximus can't have griffins right right (laughs) maximus can't say well these are my griffins because you know that's a mythological creature but you can say, these are my horses, Argento and, and Scato. And always forget, there's a um, uh, an important significance to those names. And um, we should have remembered to uh, pull this up beforehand. So... Uh, <laughs> Is it this one or the second one? No, it's. So the name of um, Maximus's horses, Argento and Scato, are Scarto is his. Uh, Argento is silver. Okay. All right. So Argento and Scarto are his horses. Argento is silver. Silver is feminine, related to the moon. And Scarto means "to ride out." It's the active force of riding out. So Scarto is masculine, and they are Maximus's horses. So they are on either side of the Tree of Life. So they are Ida and Pingala, they are Jacquin and Boaz, the two pillars of the Tree of Life, because they carry Maximus. And Maximus's willpower. Maximus—that's all. All heroes, all protagonists, in all high art, in all uh, mythology, are always willpower. They all—they are always the human soul, as uh, we can see in uh, in the tree of life here. Maximus is—they're always in the center of the tree of life. So somebody design the armor this way and it comes out of the script the way it was written that Maximus is pointing to these two horses and saying this is Argento and this is Scarto somebody somewhere who wrote the script screenplay either unconsciously or consciously did this those are, those are the only two options. But if he did it unconsciously, that means something did it through him. Because this is no accident. This armor, just like all the characters mapping onto the tree of love, tree of life, that is no accident. It's divinely inspired, it's high art, it's mythology. It's very interesting to think that divinity can work through someone who's still unconscious, you know? It is interesting, but remember that people are compelled. Even if you ask them, they will not tell you. They cannot tell you where or how or why they did something. All they can tell you is, I just I just knew I had to do it this way. It just came to me. And if they take credit for it, well, I'm the smart one. Oh, yeah, yeah, it came to me. But they can't tell you where it exactly came from. They can't. So they'll take credit for it. It's the ones who really know themselves and observe themselves will tell you that, for example, Mozart in the film Amadeus, and we have an article on Amadeus, by the way, and that is a fantastic, another absolutely fantastic film and another piece of high art. But there we see two different characters. And again, like The Last Duel, we have Salieri and Mozart, and Salieri is envious of Mozart. Why? Because Mozart is God's chosen vessel, God's chosen vehicle. And it and it and Salieri becomes incensed. He becomes he becomes livid with anger and envy. Why? Why would God choose? that sniveling, obscene little child <coughs> to be his messenger. It's, just, it's such a genius, brilliant uh, of, um, personification of the false self, of the ego, who covets, right? The ego is envious. The ego covets. And the most exhilarating or, or, or vivid Tangible way that one can represent covetousness is from the what is it? The sixth commandment: "Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife." Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That's in the Ten Commandments because that's it's such a big deal, right? To uh, uh, adultery, to desire another man's wife—that's a—that's a big deal. That's that man's, that's, that's the most sacred connection that he has for you to desire that, to die, desire to take that away. And Salieri, he, doesn't, he does not have an affair with Mozart's wife, nor any of Mozart's mistresses, but he covets all of them. And he uses and he manipulates them in order to, to bring Mozart down, to, cause, to bring about Mozart's demise. Salieri is always plotting to bring Mozart down in the same way that the false self and the, the villains in, in stories are always plotting to, to, to cause the, the hero to fall. So that's Scarto and Argento, uh, the uh, Ida and Pingala Commodus, in Gladiator, Commodus, the name means desirous. Why Marcus Aurelius, who is basically one of the fathers of Stoicism, he was a philosopher, and uh, to this day you can read Marcus Aurelius's meditations, and it's... It's it's still today relevant and worthwhile and valuable 2,000 years later. And uh, why he would name his son Commodus, I'll never know. But Commodus means desirous. So Commodus is desire. He is the ego. And of course, Commodus desires nothing more than the throne. He wants to be emperor. That's all he wants. That's all he cares about. And he'll do just about anything to do it, including murder Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius is the innermost being. He is the one that Maximus serves. And not only that, Marcus Aurelius says to him in the tent, he says, you are the son I should have had and he also says to Maximus I will I will uh, when I'm gone I want you to be protector of Rome and to hold in trust that power until the Senate is ready to rule again I want I'm going to be the Emperor that gives back Rome's true self all of this language all of this dialogue all of these exchanges they're they're barely veiled, right? They're barely veiled. Rome is a a a macrocosm of a single being, right? Rome in macrocosm to give back Rome's true self, and Marcus Aurelius wants Maximus, who is willpower, he who leads the army. He has the whole force of the military behind him, and it's. Maximus, who defeats the barbarians, which, of course, also represent the wildness, the animals, right? And Maximus is a Spaniard who raises horses. Maximus, who is a horse whisperer. He has tamed his animal self. His horses are Gento and Scato, his Ida and Pingala. Maximus, as a Spaniard, he's a master of Andalusian horses. He's willpower. And so the innermost being, our Marcus Aurelius, hands the throne of Rome to hold in trust to the human soul, to willpower. Commodus doesn't like that, right? He is envious of Maximus. And soon after, uh, Commodus learns of his father's plans he promptly murders Marcus Aurelius and assumes his place. It's exactly what the false self does. It's exactly what the demons are here to do. To cause our innermost emperor, our inner lord, to be out of the picture so that it can now sit on the throne. And what's the first thing our egos go after after they've after they've blocked or caused our innermost being to be pushed out of the picture as soon as our egos get on the throne of power get into a position of power it's the first thing they go after you should be able to answer this from your own experience what happened did in you... what happened in the Garden of Eden? what did the serpent do? Seduced, Adam and Eve. That's right. Temptation. And what faculty is challenged by temptation? Willpower. Exactly. It's Maximus. Commodus says ride out till dawn and, and, and execute him. As soon as Commodus gets power, he's got to get Maximus out of the picture. He's got to get willpower out of the picture. He's got, to kill, he's got to kill willpower. As soon as the ego gets into a position of power in us, immediately comes a desire, a temptation, a seduction, a whatever, which is immediately attacking our willpower. Yeah. Just observe yourself, right? When that craving comes or, or when that depression comes or whatever, immediately you want to, I don't know, grab a bag of Doritos or whatever the case may be or light up a cigarette. Or, 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 or whatever, whatever. But you know, if you observe yourself, if you're fine and everything's perfectly, you're at peace. And all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, this overwhelming craving comes over you.
1: Yeah, my willpower has basically been inverted at times.
0: So, yeah, I know. Right. So, this is so all of this in Gladiator takes place in the span of what, 15 minutes into the film.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. You have, you have Maximus, you know, fighting the, the, uh, Germanic barbarians. Right. And then you have this beautiful exchange and then it, this is all happening. This is all like in the first act of the film covering all of this stuff. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's setting up so beautifully. There is so much in gladiator that we wrote two articles and we still haven't finished everything that we could be talking about Gladiator. We The reason why we stopped writing Gladiator is because it's like we realized we're not writing blog articles anymore. We're writing a book. There is yeah. so much. It's like, you know what? We're just going to put it on hold now. We put it on the back burner. And it, it's, it's, it's going to be like, you know, someday written like a... Like what Samael wrote about, you know, Tristan and Isolde and the other, uh, the other uh, uh, operas by uh, Wagner.
1: This is yeah. the level.
0: This is the level at which these films are constructed.
1: Yeah. In regards to that temptation, I basically remember something that uh, Samuel uh, wrote about the Black Temples as well, being very clean, and being very convenient in every single way possible I mean cleanliness is not something that you can compare to those temples to the physical realm I mean no matter how well I clean my own house or apartment it's no way near those temples that you would see in the astral
0: realm so so yes very inviting yes right? it um, is. and isn't it interesting isn't it interesting Certainly, uh, even today, even today, because we've had the we've had the ability to travel, not super extensively through Europe or the rest of the world, but we've traveled enough yeah. to know yeah. that when it comes to ease of access, ease of ease of accessibility, mm-hmm. the easiest, most accessible uh, food, for example. <laughs> Yeah. Is the worst food for us. It's the, but it's yeah. the easiest to get. Yeah. Even in Japan where we lived, you know, we, there are there are vending machines for alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> on every corner, there they have beer and wine and sake vending machines everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um now, admittedly, it gets pretty hot in Japan, so the argument is, well, you need a refreshing drink. Uh, So you can be, it's hilarious. You can be out in the middle of nowhere in Japan, like literally, literally in the wilderness in Japan, (laughs) and and you'll come across a vending machine that has has cold drinks in it. And you'll be like, it's not plugged into anything. You don't know know it, but it's ice cold drinks coming out of it. It's some voodoo witchcraft uh, that the Japanese have. But um, right. but it's, it's surreal or, or when we were when, when we went to Spain, it's like that in Spain, too, when we went to um, the we were in the south of Spain, we were in Valencia. And uh, and yeah, it's like everywhere you go. And then or it's a very it's a surreal thing. You go to Guatemala or these places and then you look at, you know, you, you come across a Kentucky fried chicken or, or you're in Valencia, Spain, and you come across a Taco Bell. And you think yeah. to yourself why, why is there a taco Bell in Spain of all places yeah but there is right so so you know as above so below if the easiest most accessible, most convenient things uh, to us here in this world are the things that are the worst for us, yeah. Then, then it is it is so in the supernal worlds, and, and all we got to do is uh, observe our um, our psyche to know this. Um, this is, of course, the exchange of uh, this is a beautiful moment when when Marcus Aurelius offers uh, Maximus the throne, and, uh, and and he asks Maximus, "Do you not accept this great honor?" And then Maximus says, "With all my heart, no." And he grabs Maximus and he says. Don't you see, Maximus? That is why it must be you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because you don't want it. <laughs> That's why it has to be you. Because yeah. you're so loyal and humble and, and, and simple and you don't you have no desire.'re. Yeah, you're, not, you're not commodus. right? You're not desirous. It's only those who are not desirous, who are humble. We have to be free of desire. To be given the keys to the kingdom, yeah. Because really, that's what Marcus Aurelius is handing over: the keys to the kingdom, the power. Right. So, so that's why it's will power, because it's the will of the being handed over to the human soul. But it's but it's 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 power. It's there is again. There is so much, so much, so much going on. But Maximus has another mentor in the film. A mentor who has come before him. A mentor whose all his knowledge, all his wisdom, all the information that he gives Maximus, and indeed the armor that he gives Maximus to wear, comes from Proximo. Now Proximo, the name, relates to proximity, closeness, that which is close in proximity. Proximo used to be a gladiator. Proximo won his freedom. And he is the one who instructs Maximus on how to become uh, magnificent. He says, you're good, Spaniard, but you're not that good. You could be magnificent. Mm. And he explains to Maximus what Maximus must do in order to do that. And he describes, you know, the Colosseum and everything else. And it's this absolutely wonderful scenes with Oliver Reed is the actor's name. Oliver Reed died suddenly and tragically while this movie was being filmed. But thank God they 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 got enough on camera with him to so that they didn't have to reshoot his scenes with a different actor because the chemistry and the, the and Oliver Reed you may know was also in the film Spartacus, which was also about gladiators and also about you know slaves and fighting for freedom, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And Oliver Reed played alongside. Um, oh, gosh, the actor's name eludes me right now. Uh, not, not coming to my mind. In any case, in any case. Um, he's, a, he's a brilliantly written character, but he represents the consciousness. Because the consciousness is closest to the causal body, willpower. Yeah, aren't, uh, on the on the tree of life, and consciousness is what we need. We need the information, we need the knowledge that comes through consciousness in order to succeed in the Colosseum, in order to win the crowd. And why do we need to win the crowd? And we we learn this in the scenes of the. Uh, uh, the senators, Senator Gracchus and the other senator, are talking, and they're talking about Commodus and how Commodus has decided to commemorate the death of his father, Marcus Aurelius, with one hundred and eighty days of games. And uh, and the one senator he says, "Do you think the, do you think the people are going to be seduced by that?" And Gracchus and uh, uh, Gracchus says, "I think he knows what Rome is. Rome is the mob." Conjure magic for them, right? And they will they will follow you, right? Take away yeah. their freedom and still they war. He said the bleeding heart of Rome is not the marble of the Senate. It is the sand of the Colosseum. The beating heart of Rome is in the sand of the Colosseum. And... Proximo tells Maximus that he must win the crowd. Win the crowd, and you will win your freedom. The mob. There is something about the Colosseum and the lifeblood, the pulse, the people, the, the mob in the Colosseum, which is what Maximus must win over, must become a master of, if he is to defeat Commodus and win his freedom. and return Rome to her true self, which is the, the will of Marcus Aurelius, the being, the true emperor of Rome. So we have another representative of the egos or the sexual force, right? The beating heart of Rome is the Colosseum and it's in the sand in the Colosseum. Well, what is in the sand of the Colosseum if not the blood the blood that is shed for the mob, for the amusement of the mob. That's why the Colosseum exists. And it's interesting because not just the Colosseum, but next to the Colosseum in Rome was, 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 was what was called the Circus Maximus. And here we have the character of Maximus. So that this, that, that, I, because I am nothing, I am a slave with no, with no more power than that to amuse the mob. And Lucilla says to him, but that is power. The mob is power. The mob is Rome. And so long as Commodus controls them, he controls everything. But today, I saw a slave become more powerful than the emperor of Rome. That was the scene when, uh, following Maximus' fight with Tiberius, the gladiator who comes out of retirement to fight Maximus. And there's this absolutely, I mean, the imagination and is, is just an awe of the scene of Maximus fighting with that gladiator, um, Tigris, Tigris of Gaul. And, uh, and the, the tigers are in the Colosseum and, and Maximus must fight Tigris of Gaul, but he also must evade the, uh, the, the tigers and everything else. It's a, it's a beautifully shot, beautifully uh, played out scene. But then at the end, when Maximus defeats him and he turns to Commodus as his tradition, where the emperor is going to give the thumbs up or thumbs down, the emperor gives the thumbs down, Commodus does. Because everybody in the, the mob wants, is, is showing thumbs down. And so Commodus must give in to the mob. And then Maximus, he's about to cut off his head, but he throws down the axe. Right, so he's defied the emperor, which is gladiators would never do this. Right, so he's in, he's acting, in, but but someone in the mob yells out, "Maximus, Maximus, the merciful!" And everybody cheers. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this. There's this this. What is happening here? There is so many. There's so much stake. It's so big. Rome is the world. Rome is the known world. So, but but that's a backdrop. That's a that's a a, 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 a sim an allegory, a symbol for for the incredible struggle and the dynamic for power in our Rome and the and the fight to restore Rome. To her true self. All of this is playing out in the film. And it's and it's so brilliantly executed. As a film. As the acting and the directing and everything else. Is that it, 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 it elevates. All of those filmmaking. Elements. Are elevated. To reach and match. And, and be worthy of. The incredibly deep and powerful mythology that is at the heart and soul of that film. Which brings us to Kingdom of Heaven. Which... Yeah, I've
1: seen that one too.
0: Now, have you seen the theatrical release or the director's cut?
1: Um, probably the latter.
0: Probably the latter? Okay. Um because it's the director's cut is much much better. Yeah there's there's more than 20 minutes that was cut out of the of the film the the uh, the theatrical release was just was rushed. Uh, I mean it feels really rough they, they do they um, they have done this to uh, uh, Ridley Scott many times in the past where for example, Blade Runner, the uh, you know there was the, the the theatrical release um, they've they've always the producers and the studios have always like second guessed Ridley Scott's uh, filmmaking and and uh, his director's cuts are usually the best but um, with Kingdom of Heaven we have the story of Balian uh, who's a blacksmith and Balian, has his a motto uh, above his uh, carved into his blacksmith shop. What man is a man who does not leave the world better? And Liam Neeson plays Balian's father, uh, a lord, uh, the Lord of Ebelin. And he returns from the Holy Land to France, to... Uh, is it not, it's not France, it's England. He returns to England to reclaim his son, because his son is illegitimate. He's a bastard, basically. And uh, he convinces Balian to return to Jer- Jerusalem with him. And because Balian's wife uh gave birth to their stillborn son she fell into melancholy she killed herself balian's in mourning he has nothing left to live for and he has a he has a really really uh douchebag of a brother who's priest who pisses him off to the point where he ends up murdering him so balian gets on a horse and starts running after his father and decides he's going to go to jerusalem and he asks his father he says he asks liam neeson uh in Jerusalem, is it true that I can atone for my sins and the sins of my dead wife? And um and Liam Neeson says, We can we can find out together. And in the course of events, uh, Godfrey, which is uh, Balian's father, the Lord of Ebelin, he he makes Balian a knight. So he knights him and Balian must must uh, give an oath. And the oath that he gives is be brave in the face of your enemies. Be upright so that God may love thee. Speak the truth always, even if it leads to your death. That is your oath. And he slaps Balian across the face. And that is so you remember it. <laughs> yeah. It's such a, it's brilliant. It's just so brilliantly written and it's so viscerally felt. Yeah. And you realize you could yeah. Yeah, there it is. Like anybody on the path knows what that feels like. Yeah. Right? We've ne- we haven't been in a dark chamber and maybe necessarily taking such an oath and getting slapped across the face, but our divine mother has slapped us across the face. Yeah. Enough times reminding us of our oath. So again we are in we are in the realm of high mythology we are in the realm of esotericism we are in the realm of of initiation of nobility yeah. the noble path the the path of righteousness the path of god to be a servant of god a holy warrior that's the that's what a knight a paladin really is. It's, it's the same what a samurai was in Japan. A, a warrior monk. That's what certainly, and we run into more characters like this. Here on the right, we have the Hospitaller, who is literally a warrior monk. is taken a vow of celibacy. He is a physician. He is a scholar. But he is a bona fide monk he's a priest essentially but he's taken yeah. up the sword he's taken up the sword of crusade and he is in many ways a, a borderline mythological character in the film he, he appears out of nowhere to instruct Balian especially in times of hardship. He appears out of nowhere after Balian is attacked in the desert. He comes and he just appears out of nowhere and his hand comes down he just touches Balian on the temple. And Balian wakes up and the the hospitaler is nowhere to be found. Yeah. Some have surmised and theorized that the Hospitaller is, is, is a figment of Balian's imagination. But of course, they have to rationalize that because they cannot comprehend Kingdom of Heaven as a mythology. That it's set in, his, in a historical context, but like Gladiator, it's high art, it's mythology, it's like Shakespeare, and ghosts come and go from sh- on, off and on the stage in Shakespearean plays, all the time with no explanation, yeah, <laughs> no justification. Just all of a sudden, oh yeah! All of a sudden, the ghost of Hamlet's dad shows up. Yeah. Hey, how you doing, Hammy? I got something to tell you, and then he leaves again.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: right. And and where do we see that happen? We see that happen in Star Wars, Where the ghost of 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 uh, of um, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi all of a sudden starts whispering to luke or shows yeah. up in this ethereal etheric form this this force ghost they call them in in star wars and again no explanation no no setup no preparation no scientific anything you know like you know explaining how or why and when and you know so forth yeah so the hospitaller is one of these characters and and in no uncertain terms, he. it is difficult in Kingdom of Heaven to map the characters precisely onto the Tree of Life. And that is because there are multiple characters that are assuming the same role. As one dies, another one replaces him. So yes. as, uh, as Liam Neeson leaves the stage who enters the stage um, Oh, before we get there this is one of uh, the hospitalers favorite quotes uh, from the film "Is I put no stock in religion by the word religion I have seen the lunacy of fanatics of every denomination be called the will of God I have seen too much religion in the eyes of too many murderers holiness is right action and courage on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves, and goodness, what God desires is an, is here and here, yeah. And what you decide to to do every day will make you a good man, or not. To be or not to be, yeah. And and and, and spirituality versus religion and everything. So the Hospitaller is the whisperer of these truths, right? To 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 Baylion. these levels and again this is that scene where balian throws the rock makes a spark the dry bush goes up in flames and he says i did not hear it speak there's your religion there's your burning bush and that's the uh the the um what the hospitaler says i put no stock in religion etc 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 uh we have another character here this is the um, uh type this is tiberius Tiberius who is the uh, basically the sheriff the sheriff um he works for the king and he's the sheriff of Jerusalem and then we have the king himself I don't know why these slides are advancing on their own they should be King Balian and King Balian basically takes the place of Sir Godfrey and Balian uh, sorry King King Baldwin King Baldwin takes the place of Uh, Godfrey in Balian's life as a father figure
1: yeah this is my favorite scene
0: yeah the scene when he's talking about chess right yeah and uh, all the world's in chess and all that good stuff and um, the quote is the whole world is in chess any move can be the end of you do anything except remain where you started and you can't be sure of your end Remember that howsoever you are played or by whom your soul is in your keeping alone even though those who presume to be who presume to play you be kings or men of power when you stand before god you cannot say but i was told by others to do thus or that virtue was not convenient at the time this will not suffice now I personally, Edward Norton played King Baldwin. Yeah. And there is something about how he was able to play this character that's behind a silver mask Yeah, (laughs) the entire time. But there's something about the way he was able to capture the physicality of a of a man who's dying of leprosy but has the majesty of a king yeah he has the humility and weakness of a man dying of of this disease but he has the majesty and the confidence and the strength to be able to ride out to meet salahuddin and and face him off outside of kirak yeah it's just this is when people uh, fail to appreciate the the art of acting
2: <clears throat>
0: as the sculpting of energy. Yeah, and, and the and the and the the this is such a when so many actors nowadays and so many studios and directors. I don't know if you have noticed, but when they do um, uh, these superhero movies like Spider-Man, for example, yeah. the impulse of the director is for Spider-Man constantly be, to be taking off his mask so that so that we can see Tom Holland's face or Andrew Garfield's face or whoever's playing Spider-Man. And it's this, it's this weakness of these directors and those actors that, well, if they can't see my face... They can't see what my emotions are. They can't see what I'm feeling. These people have never studied Kingdom of Heaven. No, they have never watched uh, Edward Norton's performance here. Heard his voice, listened to it, and realize, holy, th- this th- th- this is—he's he, practically worthy of a uh, of a uh, supporting actor Oscar. Yeah. And we can't see, we can't see his hands, we can't see anything. <laughs> but, but, but this is a um, and of course, the chess thing. Master Samael writes so uh, uh, b- beautifully and lovingly and intelligibly about chess as a allegory for life and an allegory for the path. Yeah. And we've only touched the surface of it when we made our meme, explain the black pieces and the white pieces and the relationship, our relationship to them before we awaken and after and through the process of awakening. But uh, if, if you do a Google search for Samuel Vayor and in chess, you will, you will find all the various different things that he wrote and said uh, about chess and it will enlighten and enliven you to the power of that game. It is the perfect game. Yeah. It is perfection. It is in, in so many different ways. Um, on, on Wednesday, we, we spoke at length at long length about chess because we used to play chess. We used to be a a chess prodigy. We used to play chess uh, competitively as a child and as a, uh, as a preteen and teenager. Um, There is so much poetry and drama and history and again, and, and spirituality chess is truth.
1: Yeah.
0: It's as simple as that. The weakest character on the board is what? The pawn.
1: Or the king, basically, yeah. Sorry. It's the king.
0: Because the pawn has strength in numbers. Yeah. Right? There's You have eight pawns. And pawns are very, very, very important. They're your foot soldiers. They're your leading... They lead the charge, in fact. Yeah. Pawns and knights. But, uh, and then the strongest the pieces, the queen. Yeah. And that is to a Gnostic, the most important aspect of oneself is, that is one's divine mother. Yeah. The divine feminine force is, is everything to a Gnostic. Everything. Without that, try playing a game of chess without your queen. <laughs> yeah. That's what masters do, by the way, when they play weaker characters, when they when they play weaker players. Yeah, the chess master will take their queen off the board and play without their queen.
1: Yeah, and still win <laughs> most of the
0: time. Yes, but I mean, but at least it's their it's their way of challenging yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. Then we have, of course, we have the actual queen of Jerusalem. And uh, this is, uh, um, oh gosh, uh, I, cannot, I cannot remember either the actress's name or her character's name.
1: Yeah, but I remember her from the movie as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, but but there's the divine feminine. And through her, Guy de Lusignan takes power and becomes king. And Guy de lusignan was not chosen by her but was chosen for her was imposed upon her so guy yeah. de lusignan he's one of those templar fanatics he represents the ego the false self yeah Who's married to the queen and takes takes uh ru- and rules <clears throat> where he should not and then of course we have <laughs> Renaud de Chatignon. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Who is who's I mean he's a diabolical character no doubt but you can't help but love him as a character and how he was played and portrayed. Yeah. You know, he's just this this how do we, he's just a shit disturber like just he's one of these men that yeah. in a, what a dark night was it in the in the dark night um uh Alfred uh says to um, to Bruce Wayne he says some men just want to watch the world burn yeah that's renaldo chatillon he just he just lives for bloodlust and in many ways you could say that he represents lust or that yeah because he works for the false self because and then he brings about war he brings about chaos that's his job. That's his, that's his assignment. Is to 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 cause chaos. Yeah. Just and, and bring about the. You know, this is uh when they're going on that raid. And and um. Oh, we're getting on in time. So let's skip over the part about um. Uh, her son. Who was also born leprous. And puts him out of misery and whatever. Let's go straight to the Battle of Jerusalem. Now, here we have that interesting phenomenon where Balian says, We are fighting for the people, the souls inside. And we are not fighting to protect these walls. We are fighting to preserve and protect what's inside. And this is when we think about the kingdom of heaven. See, this is the kingdom, Malkuth. The three-dimensional reality. This is our kingdom. And so we have a temple. We have walls. We have this this physical um, phenomena, phenomenon, called our physical body, our temple, and the the mob or the heathen, right, the adversary, the enemies of God, if you will, okay, desire that temple for themselves. The the human soul, the true self, fights not to preserve the walls, but to preserve the souls inside. So that's Balian. He's fighting for the kingdom of heaven which is here and in here and in what we choose to do every day, to be or not to be. So we brought this up in the context of look at how, and maybe we are also partly uh, guilty of this. Look at how in the world, look at all the energy and effort and time and money that is spent on perfection of the physical body. Yeah. On getting, being in this incredible physical shape. We, we have a, uh, a, f- a friend, a, f- a former friend from university who is our age. So she's nearly 50 years old. Or no, she's 50 years old because she's older than us by a year. Mm-hmm. And she does uh, body sculpting. She's a mother of three children, we believe, if we're not mistaken. She has three kids and she does body sculpting competitions. And there's no question, you, you see she puts her photos on Facebook and whatnot from her competition. Yeah. yeah. There's, no, there, there's no question about the the sort of the body sculpting element of it. But again, in the context of, of, of the film that we're discussing. it's just as when some master Samael talks about people who take this thing called sport and they take it too far to the extreme. Yeah. It's we, who we are and what we should be fighting for is what is contained within these walls The walls will age. The walls will crumble. We will all get old. And we will all get sick. And we will all deteriorate and die. Yeah. Unless, of course, we practice the rites of rejuvenation every single day. And we walk the path of the Bodhisattva. And we die and resurrect. And we learn the esoteric technique to be able to preserve the physical body like the pharaohs did and we, yeah. we there is a way to preserve the physical body but i mean that's a there are very 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 well maybe not very 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 few but there's a handful of ascended masters who are on that path to be walking yes. among the earth using that methodology count saint count saint germain among them but the thing about count saint germain is that what he's three thousand? He's been around for three thousand years or over three thousand years. Yeah. In the same physical body.
1: So. Yeah, but that is not up to us anyway. Exactly. Even if we get to that
0: point. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the point that we're trying to make: is that you're not going to mm-hmm. get there by doing body sculpting or by by doing <laughs> by, by jogging. Right. That's not how Count Saint Germain preserves his body. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, again, we have to, uh, before we can worry about the walls, we must worry about what's inside. Yeah. And there's Balian defending the walls against Salahuddin, who is uh, leading the charge against city of Jerusalem. And Balian asks, what is Jerusalem worth to you? And Salahuddin says, nothing. He walks away and he turns around, <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah, Which is the... It's this beautiful moment of the, how should we say this? The all or nothing nature of the ego. Yeah. I want it all or I don't want it at all. <laughs> yeah, craving I,
1: I, and aversion. Yeah.
0: Craving and aversion, but also all or nothing. So the extremism. Yeah, yeah, encoded. But also, the 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 nonchalant. The the ah, pff, I don't care. I really don't yeah. care. But I have to do this. Yeah. I have to do this. I promised. They they the only reason why they made me king. Is because I promised to give them back Jerusalem. That's the only reason why yeah. Saladin is king. Yeah, right? so he has to do it. It's his job. It's his job. I, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Jerusalem's worth nothing. But in the here and now, it's everything, because it's the yeah. only thing. It's like it's the ego is mechanical, that way, and yeah. you observe the ego, and it's that way. One moment it wants the cheesecake, the next moment, I never want to see another cheesecake. Yeah, (laughs) so it's there's so much again in this this film, not the same way as in Gladiator, where you know everything can be clearly mapped onto the tree of life and everything, but it's a little bit more fluid and a little bit more, yeah, more uh, uh, fairy tale ish because the whole thing is Mm -hmm. very dreamlike yeah the film
1: yeah i think that's why i actually like the movies uh, because i think the most beautiful of truths are basically those that cannot be mapped out uh, Mm. but need to be experienced uh, because not all experiences is um, possible to uh, describing words basically
0: no, true, true, and and this is uh, uh, again. There's so there's so much dreamlike or surreal type things taking place. I mean, l- going back briefly, <clears throat> what just come, came into uh, my mind? Can do we? Can we see our innermost being? Can we yeah, see our most king? That, yeah, right. Because he's covered, he's hidden. Yeah, right. He's 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 moving the pieces. He can instruct us. He can talk to us. But but he's he is shrouded, right? Yeah. He is he is he is concealed. Yeah, our king is is hidden from us. But we must do we we are charged to do his bidding. We are charged to be in his service, but we we don't we can't really see him. We just have an image of him, an icon of him, like the logos, right? We have this 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 mask and this this these these silk robes. Yeah okay, let's uh, see if we can't wrap this up. Uh, and the last slide we come to is uh, Richard, Richard the Lionheart, <clears throat> who comes looking for Balian, the defender of Jerusalem. And Balian and uh, and his wife, uh, they they end up returning to uh, Jerusalem with Richard the Lionheart crusading for uh, to take back the kingdom of heaven and And uh, there's a uneasy truce with with Salahuddin, and that's the end of the film. Yeah. Um, Eva Green, that's the name of the actress.
1: Yeah.
0: Eva Green. I still can't remember her character's name though. For for heaven's sake.
1: Green, as in green, with two e's. Yeah.
0: Uh green as in uh, uh the color green. G-R-E-E-N-E. That's oh, what we okay. spell her name. G-R-E-E-N-E. Ava Ava Green. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> okay. All right, that brings us to the um Uh we have been working on our book, yeah. Yeah. And um and one of the uh interesting things that happened as we were working on our book was <clears throat> how can we write a book for normies? Right? For those not on the path.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is quite a challenge. And,
0: and, and that is not intellectual mm-hmm. on top of it. And what came to us was uh, something that we feel everybody can can relate to, because everywhere you go in the world, the puzzle is an activity and a toy, which is almost a universal experience. If you tell people we're making a puzzle, most people will understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And most people will have made a puzzle at least once in their life. Yeah. And it is on that basis that came to us. And, and well, we're just going to start reading and, Um, we're just going to start reading and um, sharing with you all that came to us in the process of because we're the book that we're writing is about fear it's an adaptation of our uh, article about fear and um, we have a working title but we may not stick with it we might have to go with something a little bit more catchy because we have to make this saleable this has to we have to be able to make a splash with this book yeah we have to be able to make an impact we have to be able to to shock this humanity into some sort of semblance of maybe not not everybody but but you know but every you know on the border or people you know and as we're facing mm-hmm. this 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 the uh the the true global pandemic yeah um, we actually um
1: Yeah so I basically try to explain to people sometimes that life is their teacher and they somewhat know what I'm talking about but uh, when it's come it comes to the more more subtle things it, it get it gets really impossible
0: the the main the main okay so I'm going to I'm going to start reading and um uh, and I'm going to put this on the screen so you can read along yeah um, but let's just, let's just go in this. I'm not going to say anything about it because it should be self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. I may pause to, but if you would like me to pause, just let me know. Just say, mm-hmm. just ask, you know, I want to ask you a question or I, or you, or if you have a comment or feedback, mm-hmm. that's what, that's what we're looking for because okay, yeah, right. we, we, but it's also very helpful to us to read this out loud because then we hear it for the first time we hear it so much it's it becomes so much more crystallized in our consciousness yeah if we can see it and hear it and when it's multimedia when we're just reading it on in our head on the page it's so very like with blinders on yeah but when we are performing it Right as you can see, we're very animated. We were on the stage. This is our—we belong on the stage. Our, we we believe in show and tell. Yeah, that's why we talk about movies and we try to use images, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we want to be able to invoke that same sort of multimedia experiential qualities in the writing process to 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 create. And again, it should become self-explanatory. So, what is ego? Typically, when we think of the word ego, we likely think of one or more definitions related to the I, the self, as defined by contemporary psychology, psychoanalysis, or philosophy. According to Google, that is Oxford languages, a person's sense of self-esteem or self-importance. For example, a boost to my ego. The part of the mind that med- mediates between the consciousness and the unconsciousness, and it's res- and is responsible for reality testing and a sense of personal identity. That is the psychoanalytical definition of ego. Yeah. Or in metaphysics, the philosophical uh, definition of ego: uh, a conscious thinking subject. So these these three constitute the contemporary understanding of what ego is. We will be using the word ego very differently in this book. We'll make clear precisely what we mean by ego and support the assertion that the definition we are using is not only the original meaning of the word, but its true esoteric, that is, hidden nature. This definition and explanation will invariably challenge the contemporary materialist, secular atheist definitions above. But once armed with the self-evident experiential knowledge of ego's true nature, which we can all seek and easily verify within our own consciousness, we will easily deconstruct the above erroneous definitions in due course, revealing their shortcomings, inaccuracies, and misrepresentations. The definition of ego we will work with shall prove infinitely more practical when it comes to facing the the many faces of fear, especially when it comes to comprehending how and why fear behaves as it does, and, by extension, how and why it makes us think and behave as we do while under its influence. To comprehend that definition, which is not arrived at via an intellectual process, but one of conscious contemplation and hands-on experience, we begin as one might begin any puzzle dump dump the pieces on the table turn them all upright and identify the corners which will frame an emerging detailed complete picture ego means i in latin and is related with the word demon via demonstros or demonstro meaning I point out, origin of demonstrate, and demonium, meaning lesser or evil spirit, a parasitic metaphysical entity which causes suffering. Incidentally, point out is monstrare in Latin, and monster, monstrum. Before a demon, ego, I, can be found guilty, Latin sans, Old English sin, the etymology of sin, it must be demonstrated, the ego must be revealed, I pointed out, as a monster, the cause of suffering. In Christian mysticism, that means bearing witness to the revelation of the seven deadly sins, fear, pride, greed, envy, gluttony, laziness, and the mother of all sins, lust, craving and aversion, lust for power, lust for fame, lust for fortune, etc., What bears witness to and can testify against the causes of suffering, proving them sinful, guilty, is consciousness, but only if that consciousness is illuminated. Demons, monsters, egos, eyes, like so many parasites found in nature, thrive in darkness and abhor the light, precisely because it is only the light of consciousness. That can be seen that that they can be seen and found guilty. Light bearing in Latin is Lucifer. Lucifer is also morning star and is associated with Venus, love, charm, and proto-italic venus, desire, who, as the goddess of love, and love is severity and mercy and balanced measure, applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom is the Divine Feminine, Mother Nature, the medium of reality on all dimensions, and the negating force required for all creation, destruction, evolution, and devolution in the universe. In this context, Lucifer is the torch held high in the right hand of Lady Columbia, the personification of the New World, the Americas, immortalized in the Statue of Liberty, on whose head sits a crown of seven rays. This suggests our Divine Mother, working with our individual Lucifer, can help us gain liberty from the causes of suffering by illuminating the seven deadly sins and raising our consciousness out of darkness into the light of the seven heavenly virtues, chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. Columbia comes from Christopher Columbus. According to a contributor to ThoughtCo.com, quote, The word Columbus means dove in Latin, and Christopher means Christ-bearer. Serendipitously, the dove represents the Holy Spirit, bina on the tree of life of Kabbalah, which sits atop Boaz, the feminine pillar, columna in Latin, of severity. Christ is known as the light of the world, redeemer of our sins, the Son of God, the Father, chokmah on the tree of life, which sits atop Jacquin, the masculine pillar, or kolumna. Uh, the masculine pillar, or kolumna, of mercy. Thus, the Christ-bearer is one, is one who bears the light of the world, which can redeem us of our sins and bring us peace through the Holy Spirit. The Divine Mother, Columbia, Lady Liberty, Lucifer. The torch in Columbia's right hand is the light bearer. It should also be noted that Christopher, which means oh, um, there is a uh, visual that we are working on to be included in this uh, in this part of the chapter. So we have Boaz and Jacquin, the feminine, masculine. So in other words, Tree of Life, person, etc. Yeah, Self-explanatory, I think, from the uh, text. Christ-bearer also means that which bears the Christ. So that which bears the Christ into the world, she who bore the Christ into the world was Mary, the virgin mother of God, which is also the divine feminine. So this relationship is so intimate between these, the light-bearer, Christ is the light of the world, and the light-bearer is Lucifer, But Christ-bearer, Christ-bearer is the Virgin Mother of God, the Divine Mother. So the connection between the Light-bearer and the Divine Mother is so intimate. And that's why Lady Liberty holds Lucifer in her right hand. Yeah, If Lucifer sheds light on, demonstrates, points out, makes conscious the causes of suffering, our eyes, egos... Then it follows the linguistic relationship between Lucifer, demons, monsters, and desire morphed into the commonly understood association between Lucifer and the devil via the slow emergence of English from Latin and the other proto-English languages over centuries of hand-copied texts, liberal translations, cultural exchanges, and many other circumstances. Esoterically, the fallen Lucifer, Lucifer as fallen angel, Is associated with satan from the original hebrew uh, shaitan pronounced shaitan meaning adversary also shaitan in islam devil or demon shayatin plural as is implied should the bearer of light that which brings enlightenment to consciousness fall under the spell of temptation hypnosis and fall into darkness ignorance Then Lucifer no longer serves our consciousness, but the adversary. The singular I we identify as. The singular ego as understood by contemporary psychology. A single demon. The devil. Satan. Which merely symbolizes the legion of individual psychological aggregates. Egos. Eyes. Sins. Demons. Or by whatever name. Which cause suffering, hypnosis, and ignorance. In synthesis... If the light of our consciousness falls into darkness, is charmed by desire in any given moment, we identify with any one of a legion of eyes. I am afraid. I am hungry. I am envious at all. And or their cravings and aversion. I want this. I don't want that. Our consciousness becomes hypnotized and ignorant of its true self, which is want for nothing. In other words, when Adam and Eve, humanity, were charmed by the serpent, symb- symbolic of lust, the inverted sexual force, the mother of all desires, Satan, all egos, and ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, indulged lust, became identified with the resulting desires and their causes, each expressing itself as an eye. Their consciousness became hypnotized, ignorant of their true selves. Their consciousness can be said to have fallen asleep. Cast out from the Garden of Eden, symbolic of the age when conscious human beings once lived in relative innocence, fully aware of the supernal dimensions of reality and their true nature as monads, divine vessels of being, the being in human being. Cast out of Eden and into the desert of suffering and hardship under the continued influence of egos, humanity became limited to physical experience of and through the four bodies of sin, mental, emotional, vital, and physical bodies. If the consciousness remains asleep, our mechanical lunar bodies are constantly influenced by the metaphorical singular embodiment and and epitome of all evil, the cause of all suffering in the world, in microcosm and in macrocosm, our individual Satan, our ego, our I. Ego consciousness, then, is the very nature of psychological hell. In Buddhism, a spiritual philosophy, so in other words, up to this point, we basically outlined the classical Western and Judeo-Christian origins of, and, and relationships between the classical Western philosophy and uh Let's rephrase that. The Greco-Roman Western origins and Judeo-Christian origins of the relationship between ego and demons, the devil, Satan. Yeah. Um, From here, we will go into the Eastern origins and relations between so, for example, from in Buddhism and in Hinduism and in other Eastern religions, that they arrived at the same conclusion. Yeah. Again, we are not. We are trying. We are not trying to take a intellectual syllogistic approach, saying A plus B equals C. Right, and uh, uh, B plus C equals D, ergo a equals d or whatever that you know whatever that kind of we're not trying to take that kind of approach instead we are trying to do what we said we were going to do is reveal like turn over all these pieces of the puzzle
2: yeah
0: and try to find the corners and and try to find the edges that frame the big picture and it is our hope that we will be doing this conscious kind of it's almost like a like a contemplation or a meditation as as opposed yeah. to being a didactic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Because we don't want to be didactic. We want to show, not tell. Yeah. And allow the synthesis to occur, where the the reader goes, you know, they they, they have that moment where where they go, yeah, oh, yeah, that this, this is, you know, and then as we as we continue forward, and then when they have that moment, or we we help them along in, in having that moment we then can turn back to these contemporary definitions of ego and start deconstructing them within the framework of this, this new revelation. Yeah, we, have to put all these piece, all, we put all these puzzle pieces together, and they're all pointing to the same thing. And of course, we have a lot more that we're going to bring to bear into this, conversation including the uh, uh, the manifestations of ego in, for example, um, uh, computer systems, so how malware infects computer systems and how parasites affect biological systems and that uh, these, and and the the nature and behavior of, of a parasite, and the nature and behavior of malware And the nature and behavior of corporations as parasitic entities existing on the body of planet Earth. And using the Alm of Life and using like, we we have that, that, we've done all that in videos and so on. But we're really synthesizing a great many things and we're pulling in from a great many in order to have this general overview and discussion of ego because we have to have this as a foundation yeah, to be able to discuss fear. Because fear is an ego and not just an ego.
1: No, and fear is basically the power source for black magicians as well.
0: Well, it is because because there is you you notice that there is no ego called control.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Right, but that is exactly what fear is. Yeah, and and you see this is and fear is we. I mean, if you if you are familiar at all with our article, um, it fear is the great chameleon. Yeah, right? and it fear loves loves to disguise itself as other egos and the whole point of by the way but uh for for starters let's just i'll just throw this up here because dylan made oh yeah looks so good uh looks good so far the book uh don't be afraid to let your compassion and intensity shine through in your words because that's what makes these live streams interesting my friend oh well we're glad to hear you say that um, because uh, we watched on the weekend we needed a we needed a bit of a break from this and we had a difficult day yesterday, a uh, challenging day because we we ran into an article about getting books published and whatnot. and it was a very discouraging article. Having said that, we so one of the things that we did, is uh, we spent the weekend watching uh, films by uh, featuring Daniel Day-Lewis, who is, in some ways, we can say, uh, the greatest living actor of our time, of of our generation. In some ways, we can say he is the best black magician among actors <laughs> of our generation. Yeah, who? Um, because, um,
1: because what was his
0: name again? Da- Daniel Day Lewis. Oh yeah. So he played in um, he played Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York, and he played uh, Daniel Plainview in uh, There Will Be Blood. Um, he also played um, uh, Chris, I can't remember the name of the, the, the individual, but he was also in My Left Foot, and he also played Lincoln in Steven Spielberg's uh, film entitled Lincoln. Okay. And he won, he is the only person, the only man in history ever to win best actor three times. He's the only one to ever to ever do that. And uh, if you if you see the performances, uh, if you see the films and you watch those performances, you say to yourself, well obviously obviously he was deserving of those of those Oscars. But, he, but Daniel Day-Lewis is a method actor which means he is, the, he is the greatest method actor of our generation. And method acting is it's very um, we don't know enough about it. I never studied method acting. I studied acting like a martial art. So I worked with chi prana i worked with i sculpted the living breathing flowing body of the divine mother in real time on stage that's what i do that's how i act and i allow the divine inspiration in the words in the text and to flow through me through my innermost i an atlas does the acting the method is a is a is is the opposite of that. Insofar as the method it constructs the alter ego of the character that's being portrayed, but the effect of that is it creates a very powerful and very real portrayal because it's, it's not so much a portrayal anymore. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. Or it's as real as it's going to get. And uh, there's a very, um, you know, Master Samael had some choice words to say about actors, about how how actors allow uh, basically themselves to become possessed by demons. Yeah. And there are there have been stories, for example, of uh Heath Ledger Heath Ledger who played uh the Joker in The Dark Knight Yeah He was given the Oscar for that role and it was accepted on his behalf because he had killed himself by then Yeah He 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 never received the Oscar for that role and there's there was much talk of how he created such a persona in the joker that it it took such a toll on him and daniel day lewis uh after he played bill the butcher he took five years off from acting yeah and and that not so much that, not so much that he couldn't get the character out, and he admits to this. By the way, he admits to this. He says people have it all wrong. He says for me, it's not that I can't get the, these characters out of my head or whatever. He says it's not, it's not about that. He says it's about I don't want to let go of them. I don't want to let go. I put so much time and effort and energy into, into creating, into allowing these characters to come into me and bringing them to life that at the end of the shoot, when my work is done and all the film goes to the editing bay, I, I have this overwhelming depression that comes over me. He says, what for that, I did all that work and all that effort and all that time and all that sacrifice and all that everything for that. For two and a half hours of, on, on the screen, that's it. And I'm not even in all of those two and a half hours, I'm a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here. And so he feels and he feels he feels this tremendous. Uh, um, melancholy that he has to now let go of this alter ego that he's created. But he also also expressed that this whole process, his work, the work, which, according to him, he loves to do, he absolutely loves the work, because he says that it's fueled by his curiosity. His curiosity makes him dive deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into these personas into these characters at so much so that he 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 wants to know them from the inside out and he allows them to come to to over to He, like, fuses with them because he wants to know these characters from the inside out. Now, is there an element of black magic here? Is there playing with, you know, dancing with the devil, playing with fire, whatever, you know? There is something about the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis, there's something about the roles that he chose... Or rather, the roles that were chosen for him, the roles that he refused to do, the fact that he refused to live in Hollywood, the fact that he took on a trade when he when he after he did uh, um, uh, Bill the Butcher, uh, Gangs of New York, he he went to Italy and he learned how to become a cobbler, a shoemaker and he was making shoes leather shoes from scratch for five years and in other times he's done other things like blacksmithing and carpentry and because he it's like he needs in our our my intuition on this okay my instruction on this point, is that Daniel Day-Lewis is a very, very, very unique exception to typical actors and acting. Yeah. And that he is he is following the guidance of his innermost as he goes and he does these explorations. He doesn't fall it, in love with these characters. He doesn't allow the characters to possess them. On the contrary, he seeks experiential knowledge of the demons which occupy and motivate these characters.
1: Yeah, the darkness, basically.
0: Exactly. He's dancing with the devil. It's true. He's dancing with the devil. No question. But he is so careful and cautious and reverent and when he says when they ask him well how do you make these decisions and how do you make that those decisions and, when, and how did you make this decision on screen and so on he says i don't know he says he says clearly he says somewhere in my unconscious conscious mind decisions are being made but i'm not the one making them yeah i'm allowing right
1: yeah, I can basically relate to that because uh, sometimes it feels like I'm, I'm basically in the same position.
0: We we all are, we yeah. all are. Just as I'm not choosing these words, I'm not I'm not making decisions about these words.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, these are these are I'm simply you know, and I have been on stage, I have acted. Now the difference is I was not a method actor, but what i allowed myself to do and that's why my favorite thing to do was act shakespeare because the energy and the direction and everything the words on the page informed the performance so the decisions that were being made and and the way in which everything it just all flowed from the text so in a way You're allowing the logos to move you and motivate you and direct you and and guide you and make the decisions for you. And you are being a vessel. You are being a puppet. You are allowing these forces to move you. And I imagine that Daniel Day Lewis's methodology is not much different, except he's going about it from a different, because let's face it, um he's going from a bottom up yeah. way. And the rest, everybody who's acting, even the way, even the way I act, or the, the, the acting as a martial art, right? We're going from the top down. No matter how we slice it, we're going from the top down. Except yeah. except that but that's but that's from our perspective as an actor. When you connect to your center as the Lascomian method teaches you how to do, you are allowing, and you allow the text to inform you and you allow your center and the energy to come up through you, you're allowing your innermost being to do the acting. Yeah. And so this is where the the two meet. Two very, very, very different methodologies. But, but the best actor is the one who keeps digging down, digging down, digging down and allows their innermost being the truth, God's truth, the logos, the word of God, the light, the truth to, to, to come through them out onto the world, onto the, onto the world of the stage, onto the world of the screen, into the world through them. This is all great artists and poets and writers and avatars, teachers, prophets, this is the work to bring the light of the world through us into the world. And that's why um, the uh, method acting is not, strictly speaking, black magic. You know who does black magic is Joe Biden, right? And the, uh, the politicians, they do black magic because they're manipulating, right? But they're, but they're pretending to be real. Yeah. There is no understanding that hey, this is a performance. This is not a real person. Um it's a it's a so so we might might ask the question, well why, you know, why do something like this? Well, why as and like on the weekend, why did we do this to recharge our batteries? Anytime we need to recharge our batteries, I need to recharge my batteries, I need to... I need help defeating the demon that's bubbling up with fear again, and doubt and, 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 and discouragement and depression and all these things. I turn to expressions of the Logos. And those expressions of the Logos can be a whole movie like Forrest Gump. Right, uh, Robert Zemeckis' film *Forrest Gump*, which is such a beautiful film in so many ways. It has so many beautiful scenes in it that it yeah. that you, you or or it can be or it can be *Gladiator*. It can be an entire film like that, or it can just be watching someone who is who has dedicated and devoted their life to the craft. To a craft, the work. And Daniel Day Lewis calls it the work. That's what he calls it. He never calls it acting. He never calls it the method. He, he he only calls it the work. That is the only way he ever describes it. And he and he talks about his love for the work. In the same way that we love what we do, this intensity. That Dylan talks about that he wants to see embodied in in what we write is exactly why we need to be able to take breaks and we we need to be able to step away and, and, and put ourselves and remind ourselves of how much we love what we do. Dylan says, when an actor embodies a character, it becomes a personality disorder for most because they lose track of who's who and what's real. Embodying the Holy Spirit shows you who are you, who you are. Um, I, I, again, people, people who practice the method, they, they have to construct and create this character. And once they're in this character, they have to remain in character. For the duration of the performance and the duration of the shoot or whatever. Now, the problem with that is that some of these actors, they really don't know what they're doing, or they've really taken it too far, or they don't have the reverence and they're playing with fire. They're dancing with the devil. And if you dance with the devil and you don't know what you're doing, if you allow The devil to 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 lead—that's a problem. Look at your own life. Observe yourself. What happens when you let your egos lead? Anything good? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, it's the same thing for a method actor who's creating an alter ego and a persona persona and a personality surely surely in the moment on stage on screen demons have to be allowed to express themselves surely that's because then what's the point in the same way that our divine mother works to bring about circumstances cause our demons to rise to the surface and express themselves. Why? Because surely we have to experience that. Surely. We must. It has to happen. And that's the, 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 the razor's edge that we walk on. Because how can we know our egos? How can we comprehend our fear if we haven't experienced it. So how can Daniel Day-Lewis explore the truth of these characters and reveal that to us if he himself is not experiencing it? In the same way that when we're on stage, and we're performing Shakespeare, the way we perform it, we are allowing the text to create for us our experience. The divine logos, which inspired Count Saint Germain, who was Sir Francis Bacon, who was Will Shakespeare. Count Saint Germain wrote the plays of Shakespeare, in other words, and the King James Bible, because for Sir Francis Bacon was Count Saint Germain. And so. The Logos is in the text. And when you practice acting as a martial art, you're working with energy, and you're connected to your own center, your own innermost. Now, the energy, the light, the truth that's in the text, you are connected to to an individuated essence of that light and truth that source, the Logos. So this, it it all connects and it creates this circuit. And now you are experiencing the light and the truth of the Logos as embodied in that character, as that character is, is, is is a living, breathing expression of it. And the words you are speaking are a living, breathing expression of it. It's just that stage acting and film acting are very different and writing for the stage, certainly. Shakespeare, there's no question. There's nothing else like Shakespeare. And and Shakespeare needs to be performed this way, in the same way that all ancient theater needs to be performed as a martial art. That's why the Greeks called it amphitheater right to amplify the truth and the light and the energy that's in the text that's in the uh, the the source that's being kindled and and brought out onto the stage and the actors and then amplified through the audience and all the energies that are being accumulated in that uh, in the amphitheater and resonated there to create a heightened experience so what Plato can say uh, said to um, facilitate catharsis. Anyway, I'm getting off t- off topic. But so we we um, we we do this. It's a beautiful thing to to witness people living their purpose, living their 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 alignment with their innermost being, and seeing the fruits of their labor. It's inspiring. And if we if we have a block, if we have difficulty, if we have challenges, the other f- one of the films that we watched, by the way, was Lincoln. Of course, it stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln. That's number one. But number two, the film is talking about getting the 13th amendment through the House of Representatives. This colossal, monumental, impossible task for Lincoln to do before the end of the war. And the brilliant way in which uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was able to embody the man. When you listen to Steven Spielberg talk about the filming of Lincoln, He did not refer to any of the actors by their real name for the entire duration of the shoot. Everyone, at all times, Spielberg treated them as their historical characters. And he never, ever, ever spoke to Daniel Day-Lewis without referring to him as Mr. President. And uh, it's it's incredible because I've been on movie sets, right? So I know what they're like. And uh, even Daniel Day Lewis and Spielberg, they were they, when they were talking about the uh, and all the actors when they were talking about the mood on the set of Lincoln. They said they'd never seen anything like it before on a movie set. Nobody was talking in between takes. Nobody was, everybody was, there was a, there was such a solemnity on the set of Lincoln. It was almost as if, it was, they were, they all, it was almost as if they all knew what they were doing was some kind of sacred duty or sacred honor. There was such reverence to the men and and women that they were portraying and this part of American history, this is the one of the most crucial, important events in the whole of American history. Yeah. And Lincoln, Lincoln to them is a godlike figure, and so uh, they. It's it's incredible when one allows one's work. And the the gravitas of it.
1: Yeah, just like uh, John Williams, basically, he who made uh, uh, music for Star Wars and such. He is uh, such a person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, there you go. There's someone who, if you've ever spoke, if you've ever seen him in inter- interviews.
1: Yeah, you I know.
0: know that the, that he is like George Lucas, okay? He comes across as the most mild mannered, like humble yeah. person. Like he he's not a you know he's he's not one that seems to seek the spotlight or seek. The, he just and and everything when when he sits down all great movie composers they serve the story they serve the script they serve the images on the screen yeah steven spielberg um tells the story of when Yeah. john williams came in and and cuz john williams composed the music for jaws yeah and remember just you know, spielberg talks about that he comes in and Da, da. Yeah. Da, da. And Spielberg was like, What 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 that's it? That's <laughs> it right? And 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 he had to John Williams like, well hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute, it gets better. <laughs> yeah. What would Jaws be without that soundtrack? Without that score. Yeah. Right? What would it be? What would Star Wars be? What would Indiana Jones be? What would like these the the musicians who who recognize that that they are, again, the artist, the the real artist serves the truth. Yeah. Right. That's why in the past artists had a muse. And their muse was their divine mother. The true artists like leonardo da vinci leonardo da vinci painted his divine mother his yeah. mona isis his mona lisa his mona isa mona lisa that's his divine mother and beethoven wrote love letters to his immortal beloved his immortal beloved And, and pining for her, and pining and longing to be one with her again, and to be together with her again. His muse, his, his, his everything, his immortal beloved. This is that, that reverence, that, 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 that dedication, devotion, passion. That's why these words, devotion, and passion, and dedication are so often related to, to relationships as they are to art or to one's purpose for being. Because they're all related to the Divine Feminine, whose body we, we sculpt or paint or, or put into vibration with our musical instruments and our and our musical notation right we are we are literally we are literally sculpting painting making music with cooking it doesn't matter what what we do we are affecting and bringing the divine mind of god the divine mind of the logos the manas into manifestation through the body of the Divine Mother, our muse, through our loyalty, devotion, dedication, and passion to that process of, of impregnating her and giving birth to something new and real and vibrant, an and expression, a manifestation of truth, a manifestation of love. A manifestation of the light of the Logos, the living, breathing word of God made flesh. That's what the path of the bodhisattva is. To become to make this flesh, a living, breathing embodiment of the logos, of the divine mind of being. And but Everybody in their own way, in their own small way, no matter what level they are at. A servant can do this. A housekeeper can do this. A carpenter, a construction worker can do this. It is very, it is much, much, much harder for someone on an assembly line to do this. And this is what Char- Charlie Chaplin was so desperate to try to um, immortalize in his film *Modern Times*, because he saw that he saw that that there is that the humanity is taken out in the uh, in the industrialized process in the in the. Industrialization and in the uh, the assembly line, where people just become another cog in the machine. And uh, this is also expressed in by Tolkien, Tolkien, who hated, he despised industrialization and the industrial revolution, and he embodied that in the the two towers, in uh, in Saruman and the. Uh, the the creation of the Urukai army of Saruman, and he cuts down Fangorn forest and to build the the machinery of war. Because there is no beauty, there is no muse in an assembly line, right? There's no. It's just yeah, I agree. Right. Now, can you you can still do your work diligently and be productive and everything else but but honestly can you can you compare the life of a cobbler who maybe spends all day making a pair of shoes but at the end of the day he has a he, he looks at these pair of shoes that at the beginning of the day was nothing but some pieces of leather and some thread and some rubber maybe and then all day and then at the end he had now has created something from nothing can you compare that to working in a factory where you spend all afternoon doing something and then you look at a bin and has and it's filled with stuff and yeah you made those but you only did one little thing part or whatever and then you just i don't know It's not, there's no, it's not the same. It can't be the same. So that's um, the, the. and coming back briefly to Daniel Day-Lewis and this importance of being able to take breaks. He says that after he does a particularly intensive uh, period of work, he needs that break because he feels like a field which has gone fallow, meaning the, the soil has been depleted. And he can't grow anything in it anymore for the time being. He has to wait and grow something else in that field. He needs to allow that field to become replenished. And all, all, honestly, in no uncertain terms, us shoveling the snow for an hour and a half this morning really, really felt like that. It really gave us uh, a feeling of satisfaction. We, we uh, cleared the snow for one of our neighbors from her driveway. And, um, and it really, you know, you, we, we had a productive morning, but it was also physical labor, right? No mind involved, no heart involved. <laughs> Yeah, let let give these these a rest because when we do these talks or when we work on our stuff, right? It's this does yeah. all the work. <laughs> yeah. So that's why doing that physical activity. We also have a forest uh, that we go and on the uh, on the weekend. It was a beautiful sunny day. It was cold. It was minus twenty degrees Celsius um, uh, on Saturday. Yesterday it was only minus five. But, um, but we went for a long walk, an hour and a half walk, a uh, hike through the woods, and um, we, we uh, got some new uh, spikes for our boots, you know, to go on the ice. And, uh, yeah. and in the sunshine, and we go to the dog park, and the dogs come, and, you know, we get to, you know, and it's, it's we need that, right? We need to be, we need to unplug and do something else, and using different centers, we're using our centers in a different way. So clean the house, you know, make dinner, uh, do something, right? Yeah, right. But it's that it's because we cannot abuse our centers, right? We 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 must, be, and this is the other problem, by the way, with that um, with that. Uh, um, Uh, industrialized work where somebody does the same thing for eight hours a day because if it's mindless okay, then it's just physical labor for eight hours a day but if they're doing the same thing like working on a computer eight hours a day and yeah they get to have a little break here and there or whatever but it's like an abuse of that center yeah we, we need the ability to step back, take a break, take a breath, recharge, refresh. Do, do, use a different center. Allow, uh, go and watch. I mean, I admit that, you know, for me, Lincoln is, even if even if the truth about the Civil War and the truth about the abolishment of slavery and all this kind of stuff is, is, is not how the, how the history books remember it, um, and or and what we see in Lincoln is a very superficial kind of sentimental view of history. For me, it doesn't matter so much. I'm not interested in the historical um, accuracy of it. To me, it's just a good story. And Lincoln is a character, and the way he was portrayed, and the way, and the, and the, the spirit of, in which that story of history is being told, it's, 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 it's a mythology. And it's beautiful, the, the, the struggle for freedom and the lengths to which good men were willing to go and what they were willing to, to do and what they were willing to sacrifice. And the compromises they were willing to make for, for what was such a, an important uh, event of history. Again, regardless of what the real truth was and the machinations behind the scene and all the rest of it, there was, there was something monumental taking place at that time in history. And these men in, and these men, mostly men, were, were playing their part and were doing what they felt in their heart they needed to do. And so all of those men who made this a reality, it was the logos who was working through them, the hand of God working through but it's not but but the hand of god doesn't have five fingers (laughs) (laughs) the hand of god has billions billions and here and now on this planet we are now what eight billion yeah eight billion tendrils eight billion fingertips of the hand of god And it's another reason why we we have to do these live streams and why they're so important to us. Because we have to allow the narrative and the story to flow through us and and take us like the river takes the water. Because now we have another beautiful expression and a beautiful thing to be able to put into the book. That you, dear reader whether you realize it or not, are one of those fingers. We all are. We all have that potential. We all have that capacity, that ability to be that. The only thing standing in the way of that is our fear, is, is our need to be in control. or to control or to control others Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right but again that's need to be in control is the same right it's it's yeah yeah right so but this is this is why this work is uh is so important and and it may be now we will try to find representation and we will try to seek you know publication through a traditional publisher, but if we do not, it may be that uh, our only recourse will be to self-publish. Um, in which case, we've been looking at that, and the reality of that is, is that if we hope to self-publish this book and have it make any impact whatsoever, uh, we need to make some changes to our uh, to our YouTube and to our um, our social media presence uh we need to somehow uh don't know how exactly we're going to do this Um, uh, we need to become active on twitter probably have much more active on instagram much more active on youtube and not just be doing these live streams but actually do begin doing five minute ten minute fifteen minute videos again and uh, creating content on a much more regular basis and content which is accessible to uh, the normies and all of this uh, we need to be able to do so that we can start building up that following because that will also uh, play will also have a significant impact on, um, on a potential publisher potential in, in their belief in our ability to, to uh, promote the book and that we have a a following. Uh, so, so, uh, in that sense, uh, one of the things that we're going to start asking, uh, people to do is to, uh, to like, and subscribe us on, on YouTube. If you haven't already, and also to, uh, consider, to consider sharing on social media platforms um, more, but but also we are going to try to give people more more material to work with more. We're going we're going to um, try to produce more content. We have so much content on the blog on all so much content that what we've done in the past now it's a matter of restructuring that and, and breaking it up into more bite-sized portions and, and, and working with it in a more, again, being a little bit more, compromising a little bit more, being a little bit more um, cognizant of the Twitter world that we live in, where everybody wants everything in sort of bite-sized portions. Everybody yeah. wants a tweet right and so that's something that that we have to become more cognizant about and more more proactive in 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 reaching out and increasing our um, uh, it's terrible because you don't want followers it's not followers and yet, the numbers are what count right it's a it's a it's it's a case it's of
1: impact, basically sorry it's the impact and that uh
0: it's it's the impact and, yeah and it's the practicality of it right yeah it's the practicality of it and um and we have an unprecedented uh tool at our disposal we have these unprecedented networks uh available to us and we have the tools right we have the ability we have the skill well to one degree or another when it comes to making videos and such but to do animations and we we have the software we have the 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 hardware right so now it's really a matter of becoming uh more disciplined a little bit and more structured perhaps in saying you know what um every day okay these these uh, live streams uh we're doing them three times a week but in addition to that we have to be able to uh do at least two other videos a week on on tuesdays and and uh and thursdays right maybe it's a five minute ten minute video on something Right, something. And again, maybe we have to find that inspiration on Facebook, or however, if we find that inspiration, and maybe we need to make at least one meme or something, or a couple memes a week that we put out on Instagram and put on Facebook and you and put on Twitter. And all of these link back to whatever property we're doing. And we have to think in the broader terms of what exactly is the brand that we are going to be pushing forward and moving forward. And then of course, it's also the blog because we haven't written a blog article in a long time. And are we going to shift from making them long essays back and and, and doing what a proper blog is, is these short punchy articles on a very specific topic. And should be making those and should be using what's in the news to, to, to talk about those topics. And, and associating it so that so that perhaps there's better search engine optimization and all these these are all these kind of practical things that uh, we're going to be uh, having conversations, particularly with a close friend of ours who, who, um, who has the advertising agency and, and knows a little bit more about all this uh, social media stuff. Anyway. I want to thank you, Azaziel, for sticking around. You are now the only participant, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Oh, and Dylan, I think Dylan's still around. But I yeah. want to thank you guys for joining us. Um, I want to. Is there anything you guys want to mention or, or or ask or before we call it a day?
1: Yeah. No, I think we covered everything for today, at least. So, I'm satisfied.
0: Um. And uh, I also want to uh, encourage you to, uh, if there's anything, the, the Atlas Project is not a one-man show. No. It's not a one-man show. So um, if there's anything that uh, that if you feel that you have a you there's a contribution you would like to make, mm-hmm. or think you might want to make, or something of some kind, whatever that may be, then yeah. by all means, uh, we are open to that. Because we we know that the work that we're here to do, we can't do it alone. And yeah. we're not here to try to do it alone. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we want our live streams to be able to be open for people to participate. And the Atlas Project is a uh, it's an open stage. Yeah. And those who, you know, this is really, as we've discussed in the past, we're building an arc here. And and that arc has to be built metaphysically before it can be built physically. Yeah. And and, and so we, mm-hmm. we, we have to be able to make us make an impact and demonstrate to the world that there is something that we know and something that we possess that 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 they need. Um, Dylan says we have to we need to share the streams in other groups and to others the more the merrier and what what I need to do is I need to cut shorter versions of them or I need to be able to take what we talk about and make like five and t- 5 or 10 or 15 minute videos and release those on Tuesdays and Thursdays that perhaps yeah. synthesize and crystallize with clarity very specific subjects very specific videos because those are the ones that get traction and get replay because live streams might be good on one level but on for YouTube for the algorithm and for whatnot, not so there their YouTube does not like live streams in terms of because they like they like uh, uh, recorded scripted recorded content because that's what they can sell advertising on, and we would have to get to—I believe the number is 5,000 uh, subscribers on YouTube to be able to become monetized. So, uh, without that, then we—we are not—we can—we there's no—we can't receive any ad revenue for our work on YouTube, and that's that's another thing to consider. I mean, just from a practical point of view, right? Because that's one of the reasons why we're writing the book is to trying to figure out a way that uh, that we can um, continue doing our work um, and uh, and start generating some some income because we because we need that to be able to apply it to the other projects that we're trying to get off the ground. So, but in any case, um, thank you again so much for being a part of tonight of uh, tonight's live stream. Um, And we hope to see you again soon. Yeah. (laughs) So, inverential peace and uh, have a good night.